Today is another bit of a special episode. We have with us here Benjamin Sadiq. He is a typology enthusiast. Um, one can almost say a typology researcher. Uh, he has his own YouTube channel, definitely worth checking out. Uh, and he's dedicated his time to interviewing different people of different personality types, trying to better understand their uh, their cognitive functions. So today we have him on air with us and we're going to be talking about uh, just typology in general, uh, how it relates, some issues that come up with typology, so on and so forth. Okay, so um, Benjamin, uh, who are you? Where are you from? What's going on? How'd you get here? Why are you here today? That's a All the lot above. of questions. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I don't know, man. I I sort of uh, started a channel in the typology community and interviewing people and trying to learn the functions from the people rather than from a book or from what other people are saying about functions. Um, so yeah, looking for people in the wild who are using their functions and identifying what their functions are and trying to learn how they interpret them. And a lot of people are mistyped. A lot of people you know, aren't using the functions they claim they're, they're confused about their functions. And that just comes with the territory. I, I it's my job to interpret whether the, what they're saying is correct or not. And I hope I'm succeeding. Like, I think on the spectrum, I succeed, even if I fail, maybe with one or two people overall, I think I'm getting a good idea. And yeah, I got that YouTube channel and I'm broadcasting all of my failures right there. So it's, <laughs> there's no way to succeed without uh, lots of failures. Yep, especially especially in a field where um, it feels like everyone knows what they're talking about, but no one knows what they're talking about all at the same time. Exactly. It's uh, yeah, it makes things especially cloudy and foggy. So so now at least when I talk, I'm not talking about my opinion or things like this. I I can always point at you know I always have some reference, some some reason to say what I'm saying rather than just I read it somewhere or I have this understanding from God. <laughs> right. <laughs> uh what what got you into typology to begin with like my guess is you started with mbti but i might be wrong uh yeah when i was my dad was into mbti so he got me typed when i was like 10 and i thought i was in trouble like i got this practitioner coming over and he was asking me questions <laughs> and i was answering like all the questions how i thought like they wanted me to answer them like so that i wouldn't be in trouble so i came out an istj so that's my interpretation <laughs> They, my parents, I guess, wanted me to be an ISTJ from my perspective. That's funny. Yeah. But then since then, I've always typed INTP on tests. Um, I never thought about ISTP. Um, and it was only when I started looking at the cognitive functions, I started saying, yeah, no, I'm using NI. I'm not using NE. So I don't know what that is. And then I had a channel, a YouTube channel, and I didn't, I wasn't really aware that there was a such a big typology community on YouTube. And actually, Dave Powers was, you know, he's scouring the internet to try to type people that aren't aware of being typed. And he came across one of my videos. He left like a, a, a message. And so I went over, checked his out and got into the community. Okay. Okay. Very nice. That's awesome. Yeah. It, that's awesome that um you were able to tell from the functions that you had been mistyped. Um, I think what often happens when people look at the functions is they, they read them and they interpret them, you know, based on their own experience and based on what they assume the functions they have are. So it, it's nice to hear that, uh, you kind of had the opposite experience that like you read and you realize, Oh, that's yeah. not what I'm experiencing rather than trying to recontextualize it into your own life. That's good. 
That's very good. Yeah, and that's assuming that I, I did see them and I am correctly typed and other people are <laughs> seeing those functions as well. Right, right, right. <laughs> do, do you remember what it was about NI that you saw anything in specific about NI that you thought, oh, this is what I'm using as opposed to any? Yeah, I didn't feel like I was connecting patterns extrovertedly, like uh, objectively. I felt like my intuition was very subjective. That's a, it's surprisingly... um insightful of you to yeah be looking at your functions and to see what the issue is even though you're typing in because you know you're an intuitive smart guy of course you're going to type in and you realize everybody on mbti types in everybody yeah yeah if it's if you've got three brain cells or more you're going to type as an n regardless of you know right. it's like and it, it doesn't help that like these stereotypes for s types or locals is such poor stereotypes that like yeah. You know, no one wants to be an S in the MBTI community because they all think that because they're S, they must not have brains or something. I don't know. It's sad, but it's it's tr- it's true that it's not it's not a pleasant perspective that people seem to have on the uh, S functions typically. I think in reality, if you want to find an intuitive, it's the opposite. It's the person that most people sort of brush off and think is not actually connected to reality. They're off in their own world and I think you pretty much want to type an S because <laughs> it's sort of a curse to be an N. <laughs> it, honestly, like if, if you want to be moderately successful in the world, like you need you need some S function in you because right. if you're just pure NE or you're just pure NI, like good luck thriving in society. Like yeah, being universal, being abstract is nice and all, but it's useless if you can't if you can't uh, focus that energy into the real world and into the things that are actually happening in your life. Yeah, I feel like both in functions are about abstraction. And humans are generally just like too abstract for our own good. Like I'm a super abstract person, but the level of abstraction that we can do is usually like 100 times more than we'll ever need to in our practical daily life, right? Like it's good for philosophers and physicists and mathematicians maybe, but like even just like a software engineer, like I don't need to like do a ton of abstraction in my day to day life. So I think, yeah, we're, people lack localness more than they lack universalness, basically. You realize that you were using NI more than NE. Did, did you feel yourself vibing well with SE at all? Um, SE, I think, is a little bit of a tricky function to, to see until you actually start realizing what it actually is. Like, especially when you're first starting out, um, because like, it depends on the perspective you take because everybody's, everybody's sensory experience is unique to some degree. Like everyone has that SI, everyone has a body, everyone has a singular story from beginning, middle and end. And then at the same time, there's a real chaotic world around us that's going on constantly and there's noises and there's cars. And so like, it's. It's really hard to know which sensory you're actually using to interpret the world. And so I guess it's just it goes back down to the Jungian definition as well of subjective versus objective. Is the sensory world more on the objective side? Is it or is it more is it more shared? Is it more, hey, we've all gone through the experience. We're all going to say the same thing about the experience or are we all going to say a different thing about the experience? Like there's that idea where there's like a, a, a robbery, right? And you interview 100 people they all say something different about the experience. Um, are the similarities going to be in like what actually happened and the differences in their interpretation? And that, that you know, is S-E-N-I. If the differences are going to be 
in their interpretation, like if the similarity is going to be on the interpretation, they're all interpreting it similar. That's that's an NE, and they're all talking about a different experience. That's the SI. So it's like, are you connecting over the sensory of over over the what what happened? I see. I like that explanation. So bring that all back. Did you feel yourself like once you once you read the descriptions and once you read the the cognitive functions? Did you did you feel like you had a more objective sense of reality than maybe any SI would have? Had? assumed you did or vice versa i i i think that's the thing with se you don't feel that you have the objective sense of reality because you're constantly striving for it like you're aware of how subjective your senses are and that's what allows you to be objective about it so so yeah if you're trying to type yourself as se an se user will think they're si to some degree because they'll realize how subjective they are Interesting. That's an interesting take on it. I As long as they have average intelligence, at least. I've never heard SE quite described like that, but I, I like that. That's interesting. I was just talking to uh, any users where they're talking about their, their daily morning routine. And they're talking about how they're fine tuning, which is very introverted, their morning routine. Um, and knowing when to drink their coffee, uh, when to, you know, when to shower, when to brush their teeth like getting all that fine-tuned so that it runs smoothly so that they could be in their head, so that it's on autopilot. Because like that routine allows them to any more. Um, and so that's what the any doms were talking about. And I don't identify with that at all. I don't identify at all with having any kind of morning routine. I'm just very, I just do what seems right in the moment. Um, like I'm responsible to the moment. And I think that's something also that you can tell between SI versus SE. Because SI is really fine-tuning. And and planning the sensory, whereas the SE is just sort of sort of uh, optimizing on whatever. So like every morning I might get ready in a different way, but I'll still get out the door at the same time. Right, right, right. Yeah, yeah. yeah. We have toyed with the idea of SI being about past and future more and SE being more about uh, present. So, yeah, it's for good reason. And I think I think it comes back down to like the idea of like. You know, at SI being more meta of a function, it is more interested in the individual properties. There is a list of properties that are up- optimal or suboptimal, um, and it's aware of those properties. So if one property goes awry, it it's aware that that property is awry. And I think SE, like the morning, I'm oversimplifying this, but, you know, the morning is the morning, you know. What happens in the morning? It just it just it happens that morning. Like there's there's no there's no overthinking it with the SE. The SI is overthinking it. It's thinking about the individual properties of that morning. What is optimal for that morning? What is suboptimal? Why is optimal? Why is suboptimal? SE is just like, I mean, I'm awake. Let's get some coffee. You know. Yeah. I think SE would definitely judge the morning just as much as SI judges the properties, but they're just judging two mm-hmm. different things. If you're talking about like you know suboptimal optimal morning, mm-hmm. SE's SE is saying that about the morning and SI might be saying that more about. So I have another example to sort of maybe differentiate that as well. Um, so I, I got in this big fight with my dad when I was younger. Um, he's this INTP um, and he he wanted me to wrap presents for I don't remember what occasion. So I went to start wrapping the presents and he got he said, you don't know how to wrap presents. I'm like, what are you talking about? Look, I wrapped all these and they're all wrapped differently. So he started taking apart all my presents. He's like, there's, this is how you wrap presents. Look, I was like, there's not a one way to wrap presents. He's like, yes, there's one way to wrap presents. You do this, then you do this. <laughs> and I was like completely fighting that. I just hated that idea that there's one way to do it. Like, I'll just do everyone different. They're all different shapes. Why do I have to do them all the same? That's funny. Yeah. 
Yeah, but also not even just the hyper-conscientiousness of your dad in that situation, but the belief that there is a correct way to wrap the presents objectively is, it feels SI to me at least, Um, definitely. So I guess you told us your history in typology. I'm kind of, uh, I'm interested in your non-typology interests. It seems like you kind of have a, a broad array of interests. I was scrolling through your YouTube channel one day. You're interested in information theory? Oh yeah, for sure. Uh, so I'm classically trained as a physicist. Uh, I was That was the only subject in school that was interesting to me that I felt was of any value whatsoever was physics. Um, so I went into engineering physics in university and I've, I've, I don't know. I've 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 stopped being so interested in those TI I guess pursuits because I'm starting to work more on my FE. But it's still it's still something that I think is foundational for me. And so information theory is part of uh, physics, and it I've seen a lot of connections between information theory and typology. So that's why you'll see it there. Yeah, I stumbled across information theory, and um, I deduced that it was one of those topics like low-level maths or something like set theory, first-order logic, formal logic, that you could probably extrapolate on into almost anything, and it's probably going to be useful for lots of things. So it's yeah. that's kind of on my to-do list. So that's why I was curious about picking your brain about information theory. Yeah, of course. Yeah. Um, so like there's a huge field of information theory in obviously computer science, um, because it's it, 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 computer science is dealing with information and the limits on information and um, because like how much can you compress a file? Like what's the theoretical compression of a file? And like that you can only get from information theory or like how, I don't, mm-hmm. all that kind of stuff. All of, all of the idea of how can a file get corrupted when you're transferring it? How do you know that? Um, so all of that's in computer science and it's using the physics of information theory to, to use those. Yeah. To, to produce that. And so there's a bunch of huge people. Uh, I think Shannon, I forget his name, but like he's the first, he's really the major player in information theory and computer science. And then in physics, it's also really big because, and I found it's big in psychology because we're essentially just information processing. And the only thing we can ever know about the world is information. And so I found that like the deepest level and the, of physics or of anything that we can ever get to is on the structure of information, because that's what we're dealing with. Those are, that is our atom. That is the atom that our brain is dealing with everything else is fits within it. So you yeah. think it's like conceptually the lowest level for thing. humans. Yeah. That we can ever attain. Yeah. That's kind of my, that's my whole spiel throughout life is trying to find the most low level things I possibly can. I'm obsessed with finding the simplest constituent parts to describe everything. I don't know yeah. why. I think it's because I have like a bad memory maybe. And I just, I don't want to memorize things. I want to know how everything is built from first principles. Exactly. Yeah. So it sounds like you have a, a similar sentiment. It could be our TIs overlapping or something. Um, so, so yeah. So, it, like, I mean, physics is getting to a point where it's converging on information. It's converging on information as the atom. Like they're saying the universe is made up of information. That's it. But from a cognitive standpoint, it could be the, it could be the universe is just information. But if it's goes deeper than that, we have no way of knowing it because information is all we can deal with. So it's the limit of our understanding of reality. Interesting. Does information theory also, um, it's probably also used like in developing like just communication protocols, right? Just like the protocols of how like my modem knows what it's reading from the internet kind of. Uh, yeah, I think it's 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 more about 
how far can you send the information down a cable before it degrades or what kind of checks and balances does a modem need to have in order to make sure it's getting the right file, make sure it's not corrupted, things like this. Yeah. I know noise is a big concept in information theory, right? Yeah, yeah. Single to noise ratio, all that kind of stuff. Yep. Yeah, that's awesome. I'll have to, um, I guess I shouldn't <laughs> sidetrack us too much from... Yeah, if anyone's interested, I have videos on my channel um, and linking this to typology because it's there is a huge link between the, the two. It, it sounds like it sounds like there's there's room for, for correlation there for sure. Like, Do you want to give us like a one or two minute explanation of uh, how you've used information theory and typology and how you feel like it's related and helpful so yeah i think the biggest understandings of typology that i've been able to extract is just from understanding entropy um like information theory is fundamentally connected to thermodynamics and entropy is really the the noise it's the the white noise it's the snow so like if you if you look at every single picture in the world every single picture you could possibly take in the world, in the universe, everything on the internet, every cat, every dog, every possible picture you can ever take. So that's a huge number. That's like a huge, it seems infinite, right? But if you were to randomize every pixel in that picture, you would get snow because there's way more snow pictures than there are pictures of anything that could ever be um, recognizable. So like if you think of a check mark or a square or any character, anything, right? And so that's the difference between high entropy and low entropy. Low entropy is something that's recognizable, something that's ordered, something that's structured. And it's like the same thing. Um, you put a, a millions of monkeys in a room typing. Is someone going to type Moby Dick? It's like, yeah, there's a chance of that. Like there's a chance you'll get a picture when you randomize the pixels. It's just you won't. And so there's a huge connection between that. So the high entropy is really what the extroverted functions are doing. They're dealing with the chaos. They're dealing with the small nuances, dealing with trying to read the snow. Um, and then the the low entropy functions are, are focused on uh, fine tuning and narrowing down. So we talked about the, the morning routine for SI. And so every day they're going to keep um, optimizing that morning routine until they get to a perfect morning routine. Right. And, and the SE is just not going to optimize it. The SE is just going to sort of work with the high entropy um, morning and just get through it so that was the that was one of the biggest um, connections that's really fascinating um i will definitely watch that i um i kind of like stumbled upon like entropy when i was a kid i don't know like we i think this happens to a lot of us where we stumble upon domains that we don't realize already exist you know right um and i was like thinking to myself i was probably like 13 i was like why is having a messy room so much harder than having a clean room and this goes back to the same principle. You know, my mom tells me to clean my room when I'm 13. And I, you know, universal kid just thinking about this, like, why are me messy rooms so much? Why do they occur so much more often than clean rooms? And it's basically because if you take all the particles in my room and uh, you take all the possible states of a clean room, those are nothing in comparison to all the possible states of a dirty room. Exactly. Like there's billions of times more types of dirty rooms and there are clean rooms because clean rooms are just a small uh, classification of you know the, the organization of particles so yeah it's sorry i just find, i find it interesting yeah. <laughs> <laughs> is information theory also also about like even just ignoring noise and stuff um the most efficient way to transfer data for instance um is that a concern of information theory i think you can use information theory for that like in it, it, like you said information theory is like the first principles and then you can apply it to many different things 
And so, so yeah, that's like, that's mm-hmm. an application in computer science, which I'm a little less familiar with, but there's still lots of applications in computer science that, yeah, I guess something like how much information can you pack into a, a small package? Like what's yeah, the best you exactly, can do? Yeah. So that's vaguely related. Yeah. And also if you look at a file, is a file garbage or is there something in the file and you can analyze it using information theory to see, is this a signal or is this noise as well? And, um, the way I, okay, so at work I do gamma spectroscopy, which is just trying to find uh, where the, what energy the gamma rays are coming off of uh, radioactive material or other things. And so really it's counting all of the gamma rays that are coming in and classifying them by energy. And so if you only read it for a certain small amount of time, you're not going to get any information. It's all going to look like noise. But as you start reading it for longer and longer, you'll see peaks start forming. And you'll say, oh, look, there's a peak here. There must be a lot of gamma rays coming off at this energy. Therefore, there must be this radioactive element nearby. And so information theory is used there to say, okay, what's the minimum amount of time that I need to read in order to know that there's nothing? I see. Okay. Right. Because if you chop, if you chop anything down small enough, it'll look like nothing. Right. Or, or even it'll look like something and it could be nothing. Right, right, right. Yeah, yeah. I mean, or even our this audio file, like if you chop it small enough, like it'll either look like nothing or like you said, yeah, if you chop, if you you could play a split second of just random noise and it might sound like something recognizable if you play it for a short enough period of time. Yeah, that's interesting. Is information theory considered like its own branch of mathematics or if it's not, what is the most uh, applicable um, math uh, math field for yeah, so I think I think you could consider it a math. You could consider it physics because it applies to reality. You could consider it um, signal processing in electronics. You could consider it in uh, computing and files. Um, it's just yeah, it's really broad and wide. It, it applies to so many things. And and I guess from an NE perspective, mm-hmm. I talked to some friends who have NE and something that applies to many places. Any is picking up on that and they're saying this must be a very fundamental principle if it's applying to so many things. That's definitely something I've noticed that's very it's very popular with any users is the is constantly looking for the uh the fundamental principle, the underlying thread that uh connects all these different subjects together. I know personally I am much more interested in a subject if I think that it's connected to a different subject that I already know in some fundamental way. I think I think Colby can attest to that as well. Successful any users are so obsessed with like first principles and uh, not not memorizing advanced concepts, but rather just the little constituent parts and rederiving everything. That's just like it's so uh, it's such an any especially like any intellectuals, you know, like they're all they all have the same theme, like Richard Feynman and his the one book. Surely you must be joking. He's uh, giving a talk and he's like giving a little uh, I think he's like presenting homework in a biology class. And uh, he starts, he, he had got this book that describes the biology of a cat. And he's like writing down all the, like the muscles and ligaments and bones of a cat and kind of like showing you the ba- how basically how a cat works. And all the biology students are like, Richard, we already know that. And he's like, why the hell would you know that? Like, no wonder I caught up to you in two months because you spend all of your time memorizing the the musculature of a cat which is just insane yeah. <laughs> which yeah because they're obsessed with first principles rather than uh memorizing advanced concepts i guess yeah if you want to keep um diving into information theory as well you can see how so 
there there's different fundamental particles in the universe uh, and like some of the particles are are bosons it's like light or um uh, uh force carriers things like this and these are things that move at the speed of light and you can't locate them in space right and so information theory also talks about domains and so and this kind of domain is in physics also applies to to um, electronics and things like this. So you're talking about a sound file. You can look at the sound file in terms of its frequencies. Um, and if you look at all of the frequencies in the sound file, you'll get some kind of frequent picture of all the frequencies. You don't. And if that's the frequency domain, if you convert it back to the time domain, you'll see the amplitudes. You'll see the the waves going up and down. And so it's two different ways to look at the same sound file. It's the same information. It's just looked at from two different perspectives. And information theory is looking at that kind of thing. And and when you look at that, there's a correlation between physics because um, there's, there's a limit on how specific you can get on one domain because you're sacrificing the other. So if you know this frequency is 10 hertz, for example, you know that for a fact it's 10 hertz. You don't know what the amplitude is at any time. You have no idea. You can't locate that amplitude because it's constantly oscillating throughout all time. Whereas if you're giving a little bit more of a window it, it, uh, between the certainty on the frequency, then then you know a little bit more about what the amplitude is doing. I see. That, that's like a... And I, I might be misremembering. Um, I'm no like physics expert. But that, that reminds me of like... I, th- I think it was talking about... I think it was talking about photons... Or some other fundam- fundamental particle, and it was saying that how you can either like the more accurately you know the velocity of a particle, the less accurately you know its uh its location, and then the more accurately you know its location, the less accurately you know its velocity. Yeah, and that's exactly it, and that's the Heisenberg uncertainty principle. Yeah, and and that's exactly comes from right. information theory. I see. Okay, that's interesting. That's interesting. Okay, I didn't realize that was information theory. That's awesome. You know, I once conflated, well, for a long time, I conflated that with the observer effect. And then when I realized that they weren't connected, or at least weren't connected the way I thought, I was even more surprised about how insane the world is and why I don't understand it. <laughs> yeah. Well, do you want to go over what the observer effect is? I'm sure we can find a connection. <laughs> well, now we have to. Otherwise, the listener will be left wondering. Okay. Yeah, now we have to. We got to move on to typology eventually. But yeah. <laughs> Please. No, no, go ahead. You you brought it up. You got to tell us what the observer effect is. I'm just going to sit over here and pretend to know what you guys are talking oh. about. Okay, sure. Well, it's not exactly... It wasn't my plan today to explain <laughs> physics to a physicist, but <laughs> as far as... You're just trying to embarrass no, no, me. No, no, no. Uh, just basically like you have to use light. You have to use light to look at things, right? So you're looking at light that's reflected off of a surface. And as the light comes back to you, the light had to hit a thing to bounce off of the thing. So the light itself affected uh, the particle that you're looking at. So you can't actually be 100% sure that what you're looking at is exactly what the particle yeah, was. That's exactly, yeah. That's uh, that's actually a very high level understanding of that that many physicists actually don't even recognize. Is that, yeah, and, and then you get, you get also the, uh, I don't know, the new age understanding of that that's like, okay, we can affect, by observing something, we can affect it. But you're right. It's not the observation. It's not the observation that's affecting it. It's, it's the information. So you're putting, you have to take information out of something to observe it. And when on small particles, any information you're taking out changes it because 
the information in it is what causes mm-hmm. it to be what it is. Wow. Yeah. yeah. Does, does that have anything to do with like a superimposed uh, sub- subatomic particles? Like, is that is that the explanation for why yeah, they... A, um, I forget the exact right. Word. So there's a superposition of states. Yeah. There's a superposition of states until you observe it. That's right. So does that mean that su- that superposition is ha- it happens until a photon hits it or until? Yeah, exactly. Because you have to you have to it can be in both states simultaneously. But as soon as the photon interacts with it, now suddenly it's in that state. It's in one of those states. It can't be in both anymore. I was always under the impression that superposition didn't have a ton to do with the observer effect. But is that not the case? Are they kind of related more than I thought? Yeah. Yeah. Also, superposition is a very broad concept that's used in places that's not just physics as well. Um, it's just it, and it's, it's just a way to break something down into its constituent parts because it's the sum of the parts add up to, to something. Um, and I guess this ties into some of the work you guys are doing so that you can look at the whole thing or you can break it down into its parts. And when you add them back up, it becomes that whole thing again. Right, right. Okay, interesting. And that's superposition. Hmm. That's very interesting. Because all of those states, all of those parts are superimposed onto each other to create the the final. Yeah, yeah. I, I've always I've always loved like the physics stuff. I just, I, I wish I understood it better or I wish I remembered the stuff I learned about physics better because like all every, as you're like talking about this stuff, this is all like starting to sound familiar again to me, but it's like, I know a week from now I'm going to have forgotten all of this again, but I find it so interesting. Like, right. But like this goes into your meta meza thing, right? Because you're either looking at the parts of the whole. Right. Yeah. 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 It's true. It's true. Right. Um, I, I think there's definitely like a there's definitely some kind of association between like types that end up going to physics. Uh, I think I think physics is a ripe field for NI users because of the fact that there is a lot of information going on and it is really important to be able to hold a lot of that information in your head. Um, and I think NI does that better. I think there's a lot of but there's a lot of NE users as well in physics, but you'll see that they're they're looking at physics in a very different way. Um so like you have the people thinking of the many worlds and the many possible worlds and they're all the same and like every time you do you roll a dice or something like that you're creating six new worlds because you opened up six new possibilities and like that's very any way to look at it. Well that that's like an interpretation of quantum yeah. mechanics, right? The many exactly. worlds. Exactly. And it's you'll see all of the any people. But that's literally every time like an electron even moves, the universe yeah. splits according to that, right? Like and that happens in every single universe every time. So it's like there's a non-infinite amount, but it's the biggest <laughs> the biggest non-infinite. Pretty big. <laughs> Some people say it's infinity. I don't get that. It's an infinity on on every moment. There's a new infinity. Yeah. So that's the way the NE people will see it. I don't see it like that. I I can't buy into that interpretation because of my functions. I I I am a person who I don't like the idea because of how Messia makes things. But anytime there's any kind of science fiction that has to do with many worlds theory or um, split timelines, anything like that, I'm a sucker for it. So. I don't like right. it because <laughs> it feels almost like a cop out to me, I think. But I I like it for every other reason other than that, if that makes any sense. All right. Colby, what do you got on these show notes? We'd just like to take a brief moment to thank our Patreoners. Thank you. Patreon is the place to go if you're looking to support the work we're doing. We have day jobs. This isn't a business for us. We're trying to get closer to the truth here. We don't we don't have any uh stakes in this per se. But if you like what you hear and you think we're on the right track, 
Or even if you don't, I mean, you know, we're not picky. Feel free to uh, to visit our Patreon. Patreoners get first access to blog posts, to episodes. They get the occasional pre-show and post-show recording as well. Um, they get first say when it comes to podcast topics. They get first dibs when it comes to um, visual typings. So if you like the sound of that, go check out our Patreon. Uh, all the things I just mentioned are also available to the general public. It's just they they get to see it first. It's our way of saying thank you to them. But yeah, check us out, maybe, if you'd like, perhaps. Anyways, let's keep listening. Um, What do you think are the biggest, <laughs> like, I'm saying that we should move on, but it's just because, like, I could talk to you all day and pick your brain about <laughs> stuff, so I'm trying to resist. Um, what do you, What do you think are the biggest problems with MBTI? Oh, wow. Okay. With like mainstream MBTI. Yeah, yeah. Like, let's say probably a curacy, you know? So, yeah. So, definitely it's the self reporting thing is huge because you have to assume that people know themselves in order to type themselves. And people even understand the questions they're reading and aren't placing value on the answers or aren't placing value on the result of their answers. And so, that's a huge thing. So you randomly by chance, some people might type correctly on the self-reporting, but you definitely need a practitioner or someone to, to confirm that the person is reporting correctly. Um, so that's definitely a huge issue with MBTI. The other thing is, um, in MBTI, like the J and the P, if you change that, you've changed all the cognitive functions and like, yeah. So like, that's, that's just a huge, that's a huge thing. I, if you want to type yourself correctly, if you don't know your type at all, it's better to put yourself with the right function. So I'm TI dominant, but if I put myself as an FE dominant, then I'm still better off because I know what functions I'm using and I can navigate my my unconscious in that way. Whereas if, if I put myself in a completely different axis and I'm trying to navigate myself, I'll just get completely lost. Yeah. So... So it's, in my opinion, it's definitely better to have the correct cognitive functions and not know the order than to know an order and have wrong cognitive functions. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I, I agree. I agree a lot with that. Um, yeah. especially with P and J, like a, a lot of the tests I've seen, it seems like when they're testing for P and J, it's like they're trying to test for openness and conscientiousness at the same time. Um, as if those things are diametrically opposed, like there's, there's such thing as being open to new experience while still wanting to keep your room clean, you know, while still wanting to maintain good relations with the people around you. Um, and I think, I think that's a common problem you see with the self-reporting test is that conflation, um, between two traits that might be associated to each other, but they're, they're definitely not the same thing. And I, I think that throws right. Like, and if that affected the cognitive functions less than it does, then you know it'd be a little bit more excusable. But with it affecting the functions as much as it does, it's it it can really make things messy quickly. Yeah, and then the other thing is, um, it really changes the meaning of uh, Carl Jung what he wrote in Cognitive Ty- Types. So, like, judging functions are like TI or FE, but you could be a judger and be using a perceiving function, or you could be a perceiver and be using a judging function. And so like that already is starting to make things confusing. Um, and then the other thing is the understanding of extroverted versus introverted in MBTI 
completely changes what Jung was talking about. Jung talked about objective versus subjective and not high energy social party person versus low energy stay at home hermit. Yeah. Um, I mean, I think we agree, especially I agree with all of your criticisms of the mainstream interpretation of MBTI, especially the J and P and how the functions get disorganized really easily. Um, self-assessment, of course. Yeah. Yeah. And then it's also a business. It's it's and they have unique control over it. They're not exposing themselves to scientific criticism. They're they're deciding on their own what the test is going to be and how to interpret the functions and things like this. Right. Right. Yeah. Whenever there's whenever there's a paywall, I uh, I get a little concerned <laughs> and it's because of that, because suddenly the incentives change because of, you know, MBTI's incentive like MBTI will never be incentivized to be like, oh, never mind, guys. Uh, we were completely wrong. This is a pseudoscience, because you know their their right. livelihoods depend on it. Um, I think, I think that's, I don't know, that's a little sketchy to me. When when I, I remember when I realized that like MBTI wasn't just a system, but was actually like like uh, an institute that you know profits off of it. I remember the feeling and being like, yes. Yeah. Uh, uh, I don't know how to feel about this anymore. This was fun while it lasted. Um, <laughs> the other, th- the, but it is like an entry level drug, I guess. So if if we got rid of MBTI, no one would be into typology. Well, a far fewer of us. It really is. It really is. Yeah, uh, you see that with socionics too. Like most of the people who are into socionics started with MBTI. Um, I'm I'm assuming it's the same thing with uh, objective personality. I'm assuming most people coming from MBTI with that. Like even Enneagram, like I think people who are into MBTI hear about Enneagram and that's that's how they get into it. Like it's very rare that you meet someone who's into Enneagram without knowing about MBTI, but it's pretty common to see the other way around. Hopefully physiotype can avoid the uh, pseudoscience. (laughs) Yeah, we'll see. Hopefully. (laughs) Just kidding. That's not going to (laughs) happen. Too late. Um, I, I feel like there's like kind of like two main ways to, well, there's two things to keep in mind if you're trying to take typology seriously and you're trying to ve- develop any type of typology is one, you have to consistently class people or classify people into groups based on objective criteria, right? Um, and I don't even think like MBTI uh, certified like typers or whatever they're called, that's not really objective criteria, right? You can't. Like you couldn't write an algorithm to do it, could you? I mean, there's a there's a test, but aren't they just how how are uh, MBTI typers doing? I don't know, guys. I have no idea. I think you guys both know this better than I do. Yeah, the test the test is so. If you go to a psychiatrist who's trying to diagnose someone, they have their checklist and they diagnose the person. But if you go to like, right? If if you go to MBTI, you're diagnosing yourself. You're it's completely subjective. You can interpret yourself however however you want. Yeah. Well, your answers to the questions are objective, at least. <laughs> you really did answer <laughs> <Right>. that way, <laughs> whether or not it's true or meaningful. Right. No, which I think I think that's important to remember because you could come up with a test that coincidentally classifies people correctly and doesn't matter why they're answering the questions the way they are. It just so happens that every best EP answers such and such right. way. Yeah. No, I, I understand what you're saying. Like you're, you're saying that like you you could have a test that uses questions that are subjective in nature, but it could still be, um, it could still type consistently. 
uh, it'd be really hard to know if it was actually working because of the nature of the fact that you're using subjective questions. Yeah, you could have a t- you could have a test that says how awesome are you on a scale of one to ten, and that's a completely subjective question. But it's theoretical po- theoretically possible that a certain type of person, people that you form a class of, would always answer eight or something. You know, I mean, it's not going to happen in real life, but that's my point. Right. And the other thing is, yeah, the other thing is if you take the same person and you test them at different periods in their life, are they going to answer the test exactly the same? Right, right. Because if they're changing their answer from one day to the next, then it's not really testing anything. It's just testing a mood. Mm-hmm. I know I probably I probably would test as NTP right now. Um, I tested as ENFP <laughs> when I was younger. Um, I tested as INTP yeah. when I like came out of high school. Like, you know, so... Definitely answers change at depending on your mood, depending on what's going on in your life, depending on how bored you are, how sleepy you are. Like there's so many things that could factor into how you're answering these questions. Um, I wanted to shove an announcement in here, Benjamin, um, into this episode. So what we're going to we're going we're gonna to try and um, split physiotype into uh, two wings, basically. Um. One thing we can call the Physiotype Research Institute. Very, uh, very high, uh, high-minded name. And then uh, the Physiotype community, um, basically because we do a lot of like fun stuff on the podcast uh, that is kind of uh, pseudoscience, and we're making claims and guesses that you know if we had, it kind of soils our reputation as intelligent, objective researchers. So basically, we're gonna put the the blog or the podcast into Physiotype uh, community, and Patreon will be part of that. And then Physiotype Research Institute. I think we're not even gonna try and force Young's functions or anything. Like maybe we'll mention that that's uh, an interest of ours that we might find. But I really want Physiotype Research Institute to just be like we're just reading research papers and trying to come up with a research project. And, you know, trying to come up with a high level framework, basically, Um, because I see this problem a lot with like lots of typology that it's half pseudoscience and we're half pseudoscience, too. I just want to separate those two things. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right. Um, And and I think I, I, I really do believe that the cognitive functions are real phenomenon that do exist. And I, I know a lot of people feel that the functions are just like a nice way of like organizing the types I, I am not of that belief i do believe that the functions are describing something that's going on in, in the brain ha- something that's happening in the mind as to what that something is specifically i'm not sure um however it is much easier to test if uh big eyes will relate to being more open to experience than to test if big eyes is related to any for example so I think yeah. it makes sense from that standpoint because we're trying to do a lot at the same time. And uh, we definitely do talk about things and we do do a lot of guessing on Physiotype, the podcast, that we, while we might believe personally, it we don't believe strongly enough to make it like Physiotype, like canon at this point in time. Mm-hmm. So exactly. we're, we're trying to, what's, what's it called? Um, uh, yeah, it sounds like you're trying to create a sandbox to speculate, uh, like a safe place to speculate without consequence. Exactly. Yeah. And I feel like speculating wildly is useful. And uh, it also looks bad uh, if you kind of mix that in with your research a little bit. But I, I genuinely think yeah. like p- 
people kind of forget about the whole hypothesis forming phase when it comes to science. Like listening to your gut and intuition and just coming up with random crap is actually a decent idea as long as you're able to be objective. And when you do the research, you're able to clear away the crap. Like it is part creativity, you know, doing doing these things. Um, it's just you need to understand that there's two separate things kind of, you know. Is, is there any is there any topic that you wanted to talk about, Benjamin, before before we close off here? Um well, I just wanted to say that like what you guys are doing is pretty cool. It's like it's 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 really cool that you guys, you know, split off from the typology community for so long to take something seriously, to invest in something and then come out now and start presenting it to people. That's that's really it's really I don't how do I say how do I say ballsy in a nice way? But it's it's really good <laughs> that you guys are doing that. <laughs> because because I think things stay stagnant. Uh, they get into some kind of stagnation um, and, you know, too much pseudoscience creeps in, too much nonsense creeps in. And you need to go back to those first principles every so often. You need that kind of thing. So what you guys are doing, I really appreciate that what you guys are doing and what other people in the community are, are doing in, in that kind of respect. So, yeah, thanks for that. Well, well thank, thank you. you. Thank you very much. I have to say the pseudoscience is really fun. So, like, I can't blame I can't blame anyone for... Uh, for really enjoying the pseudoscience because I enjoy that stuff too. Um, but yeah, it's important to try to remember what can we actually prove and what can we actually test for as opposed to just, I think this works like this cause like this and this and this, and my grandma is like this yeah. and my mom's mom is like this. And you yeah. know, if you ever start arguing with someone about typology, it's like, I think all flobbity gooks are blorfendorks and they're like, no, all zipple wafts are hiffly humps. It's like, we're not having an actual argument. Yeah. yeah. Sorry. Does yeah. that make sense? Yeah, exactly. Makes perfect sense. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so if you if you can tie it back to entropy, what you guys have done um, and what you guys are trying to do is trying to find a signal amongst all the noise. And if you're staying with the noise constantly, you, you'll never find that signal. You have to get rid of the noise. You have to get rid of the high entropy uh, stuff that's going on to sort of try to sort things out, to narrow down, to 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 fine tune your idea. Um, not saying your idea is correct. Uh, that's up. That's up to everything that happens after that in the proof. But to actually fine tune something, correct or incorrect, like I, I, I bring in my video, the guy who invented the lobotomy, for example, got a Nobel Prize for the lobotomy, which he went off and he developed it and he proved that it cured psychosis. But in the end, it was incorrect. But it's still a low entropy idea. It's still something where he went off on his own. He separated himself from the noise to find a little signal. Um, and so it's definitely, mm. it's definitely understandable that you guys had to do that process. Well, I hope that we can, um, continue coordinating, talking, um, just for my own selfish reasons. I have plenty of math and physics questions that I'm sure you could uh, give me good answers for. So <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, yeah, I, I really enjoy hanging out with you guys. You guys are cool guys. Thank you. You're cool too. Well, thanks Benjamin. You're cool too. <laughs> <laughs> We have one more announcement, actually, guys. Um, it's kind of a bittersweet announcement. The good news is we are creating a YouTube channel. A bunch of people have requested it. And I mean, it makes sense because we are talking about an inherently visual topic. So perhaps listening in audio format isn't the easiest for many people. So we've listened um, and we've created a YouTube channel. Uh, we had this YouTube channel for a while, actually, but it's been AFK until now. There's just a few podcast VODs. Um, but 
it is the same as the podcast title, Physiotype. So just look up Physiotype and look for the channel. The link will be in the show notes. Um, with that said, editing YouTube videos is a lot harder than uh, editing podcast episodes. It's just a lot more time consuming. There's a lot more that goes into it. Basically, we're going to start by using the podcast episodes and just creating videos that go along with them, demonstrating what we're talking about, using pictures, using uh, subtitles, yada, yada. So with all that said, we are going to be changing our podcast schedule to a bi-weekly schedule. Up until now, we've been releasing an episode every week, but there's no way we can fit a weekly episode and work on YouTube videos at the same time. So we're going to go to a bi-weekly schedule, at least for a while, um, and see how that goes. But yeah, check out our YouTube channel. Yeah, exciting. Anyways, thanks for listening, guys. Uh, this was a fun episode. I really enjoyed talking with Benjamin. Uh, his YouTube channel will also be in the show notes, as well as a link going specifically to his um, his episode about uh, information theory and how it relates to typology. Super cool guy. We like him a lot. Uh, hopefully you guys did too. Anyways, thanks for listening, guys. See you in the next episode.